Karpas, it's a very strange thing. I mean, it's actually really the first thing that we're doing that's part of the Pesach Seder itself, because if you think about it, we've made Kiddush, we've rinsed our hands off. This isn't so abnormal, even though this hand washing is different than all other hand washings. It's not so abnormal as a way to start a meal. But here we go, taking a vegetable, dipping it in salt water. Now, just on a technical note, Karpas is a vegetable many people use Parsley, some use potatoes, some use celery, other kinds of vegetables, and it's dipped in the salt water. And the question is, what is this? And even the word karpas is very strange. It's not a word that's really familiar to us at all. And commentators have different ways of trying to decode what the word might mean. So some say that karpas, this word spelled kaf, resh, pei, samif, can be broken up into kar and pas. Kar having to do with the word machar, or in court, to sell. Pas, meaning a stripe. And if you think about the origin of the whole story of Egypt, the very first Jew who descended to be a slave in Egypt was Yosef. Was Joseph, when he was sold into slavery, when he was sold to Egypt by his brothers who were jealous over his striped coat. So Kar Pas being, in a sense, the origin Point of the whole story, the whole narrative here, Joseph going down to Egypt, the brothers following him, and then hundreds of years of slavery. That's one kind of association. Another association that some of the commentators say is that the word karpas can be broken up into samich and parech. Now samich, the Hebrew letter samich, has the numerical equivalent of 60. And that represents the 600,000 collective souls of Israel. And parech, is the word for the back-breaking, demoralizing kind of work that Amisrael did in Egypt. And so Samech and Parech, Karpas, is representing the suffering of these 600,000 collective souls. Now, whatever the exact associations are, what we are doing here is tasting salty water, and we are tasting fresh vegetable. The parsley, the celery, the greenery generally dipped in salt water. This is the custom. And the salt water is a very clear and powerful resonance with the taste of tears. And the greenery is representing this sprig of life, this delicate and also buoyant, vibrant growth, this plant who's springing into life in this spring festival at this time of year. And nonetheless, that new emerging life being dipped into the salty water. And I can't ignore the association of the image here of the very first and perhaps cruelest act that Egypt inflicted upon Israel in Egypt, which was to take the newborn Israelite babies and to cast them into the Nile. That in a sense, we have this new life, this very vibrant, clear, emergent life in front of us, and it's being dipped into the salty water. It's being descended into tears. And something that we're doing here at Karpas is actually tasting both the tears and the newness. 
we are actually tasting that new life. It doesn't get drowned away into the water. We dip it, but then we eat it. And here, I believe, the Seder actually really does begin. Because, in a sense, it's something I hope to flesh out in, in the ensuing stages of, of the Seder. There is paradox throughout, throughout every stage of this, of this night. Are we free? Are we slaves? Are we in exile? Have we already been redeemed? Are we certain that redemption is coming? Are we not knowing and praying for redemption to come? Is it Shana Hazeh or Shana Haba? Are we talking about this year or what we hope to be next year? None of these questions really get resolved throughout the Seder. And as we'll see, many steps of the Seder include both a celebration of right now and a prayer and anticipation and hope for the future. And this is really the state that Israel was in the night of as I said in the, the Kaddish installment, we were in our homes, having a celebratory meal, eating the God of Egypt on our tables, and also terrified, sitting indoors, you can't go outside, you don't know what's going to happen, something devastating is going on outside, and yet at the same time, we know that somehow through this process, we will be birthed out on the other end. So here at Karpas, we actually begin to encounter those conflicting sides of the coin in one bite. We taste the tears, and we taste the spring. We taste the new life, we celebrate new life, and we bring the tears away. And this to me speaks to what might be a deeper source of freedom than if we were merely celebrating having been on the other side of this whole thing. That in a sense to truly not only celebrate freedom, but relive or live the process of freedom in the here and now, it necessitates our ability to also bring our suffering to the surface, to not ignore the pain and the tears, and to allow that to live together with the new emerging life, the new step into being, into freedom, into growth that's taking place right now as well. We can even say that our ability to grow into a greater stage of liberation and redemption grows out of an ability to also taste the tears. You know, in the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, God doesn't intervene in the narrative until the Jewish people begin to moan and groan and cry and scream. The beginning of the book of Shemot of Exodus just talks about all of the backbreaking labor and the work and the suffering. And then there's some moments when the first Pharaoh dies and everybody just screams. And then God, so to speak, wakes up. And that really sets the whole narrative into process. So much so that when God comes to Moses, God says, I saw their suffering and I heard their cries and so I'm gonna now do something. But it wasn't until we began to cry that there was a hope for redemption. It wasn't possible for us to be freed until we could be sensitive to our suffering. This is expressed beautifully in a statement of, of the Chachamim in the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, where Chazal says, dead flesh doesn't feel pain. That in a sense, the pain, as uncomfortable as it is, and as much as we wouldn't wish upon ourselves or anybody else, well, while it is here, 
our ability to feel and sense that we are not yet redeemed, our ability to experience the tears of still being in the pain that we find ourselves right now, actually connects us to the very real visceral sense of being alive right now. If I am not alive, if I am not awakened to an ability to breathe and live in the present and in the future and be redeemed, I wouldn't feel the pain I would have already given up. There would be no pain left to feel because there would be no more life to have that pain inflicted on me. To be alive is to be sensitive to my situation in the here and now and to be able to express all sides of it. That is the ticket to freedom we're granted in love itself. And so with Karpas, we get to hold in our hand all the hope and anticipation, the true hopefulness, the real and realistic hopefulness of this moment, which is here I am, breathing, living, celebrating, embodying my story of redemption that continues to the here and now. My presence here tonight is proof of my redemption and proof of my hope for a future. And this redemptive power is so strong that I am willing to also sense the pain and the tears that live here within me now as well and to be given a space that is large enough and broad enough and expansive enough to hold me in my present state of yearning, of hoping, of aching, and of celebrating and of feeling a new emergent life that can be born out of experiencing the wholeness of this moment. I want to bring in one more very powerful association with the Karpas that's speaking to me this year, which is based on a Midrash that's brought in, Midrash Shmot, it's also brought in the Gemara of Sota, I believe, where the Midrash says that the men of Israel and Egypt were involved in such breakbreaking and exhausting work that they were just collapsing out in the fields and not coming home to be with their wives and not having more children. If you remember, that was Haro's big fear, big threat, was that there were so many of these people making so many kids and they're just going to run us out of the way. So his main objective was to stop the reproduction of the Jewish people. So the labor was really just a guise to get everybody so tired and distraught and exhausted from life that they would have no desire to have more children. And so the story goes that the women would collect water and fish and and come and meet them out in the fields and eat with them and dine and wine and they would sleep together under the apple tree in the imagination of the midrash and they would bear children there in the fields and angels would come and and help the child um, grow and be be nurtured and then this is what the midrash says the egyptians would recognize these new babies being born in the fields, they're, they're breaking Paro's decree. We said the babies have to be killed, but look, they're going out into the fields and having children so that they would come out and they wanted to kill them. And a miracle occurred. These babies were swallowed up into the earth. And then the Egyptians would come and bring oxes with, with plows on their backs to plow this earth and try to get them. And then after the oxes would walk away, what would happen? Those seeds that were planted in the earth, these newborn children 
would grow up like grass in the field, as it says, and here there's your verses from Yechezkel that we actually read in the Haggadah. I placed you, I made you like the countless grasses of the field. And as they grew up and came into full form, they would come home in hordes. As the, as the um, continuation of that Pasuk says, V'tavoy and they came into their fullness. Don't read Adi Adayim. It wasn't just their fullness. There were flocks and flocks of them. So this is just, obviously, the Midrash here is not to be taken literally. But what is the Midrash saying? The Midrash is pointing to a kind of everlasting resilience that was born out of this oppressive situation. The entire project of Egypt was to suppress the growth in a very physical, tangible way, the growth of the Jewish people was to say, we don't want your children. We don't want you to have the possibility of creating more life in this world. And that's what every decree was really aimed at quashing. And yet the Midrash is saying there was a resilience that was born from that, that created new life like little grasses in the field. This new life, these grasses of the field, this sprig of parsley, this stalk of celery, a potato, even though it's not green, a potato is even buried in the earth. It's even more like this midrash. What it's touching on is this quality that in the face of all that we face in our lives, in the face that all we are facing right now, in this moment, we have a deeply rooted connection to the source and cycle of life that continues to sustain and nourish us here and that from that very root we have the strength and power to continue to grow. We are that sprig of parsley. It's dipped in salt water. That salt water, you know, if I tried to plant parsley in salt water, it would shrivel up. But tonight on Pesach, I can dip parsley in salt water and know that it's only going to grow stronger. It's only going to grow greener and taller and holder. So I bless us to make space at Karpas for our greenery, for our new growth, for all salt water, for our tears, and to make space for all of us, for the totality of what we are embodying in this night, to be here and to bring it to the table, to let God redeem us in this moment, in this night, from where we find ourselves. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Rav Daniel Cohn. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.